God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. O God, make speed to save me. O Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me. Hi, I'm Derek Olson, creator of St. Bede Productions. I'm an Episcopal layman with a Ph.D. in New Testament and a passion for the intersection of liturgy and scripture. Welcome to episode 14 of the St. Bede Psalmcast, a podcast about the psalms in the Revised Common Lectionary, reading them in the context of the Sunday service and alongside the Church Fathers. Today, we'll be talking about Psalm 49, the psalm appointed for Track 2 of Proper 13, which this year falls on July 31st, 2016. I'll be reading the psalm from the version found in the Book of Common Prayer. Feel free to follow along in whatever translation you prefer. Hear this, all you peoples. Hearken, all you who dwell in the world, you of high degree and low, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and my heart shall meditate on understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, and set forth my riddle upon the harp. Why should I be afraid in evil days, when the wickedness of those at my heels surrounds me, the wickedness of those who put their trust in their goods, and boast of their great riches? We can never ransom ourselves, or deliver to God the price of our life. For the ransom of our life is so great that we should never have enough to pay it, in order to live forever and ever, and never see the grave. For we see that the wise die also, like the dull and stupid they perish, and leave their wealth to those who come after them. Their graves shall be their homes forever, their dwelling places from generation to generation, though they call the lands after their own names. Even though honored, they cannot live forever. They are like the beasts that perish. Such is the way of those who foolishly trust in themselves, and the end of those who delight in their own words. Like a flock of sheep they are destined to die. Death is their shepherd. They go down straight away to the grave. Their form shall waste away, and the land of the dead shall be their home. But God will ransom my life. He will snatch me from the grasp of death. Do not be envious when some become rich, or when the grandeur of their house increases, for they will carry nothing away at their death, nor will their grandeur follow them, though they thought highly of themselves while they lived and were praised for their success. They shall join the company of their forebears, who will never see the light again. Those who are honored but have no understanding are like the beasts that perish. So, why is this psalm appointed here for this day? The gospel for this Sunday is Luke twelve thirteen to 21 sometimes referred to as the parable of the rich fool. The focus is on a man, an individual whom we see spending all of his time and effort considering his wealth, while we learn that nothing less than his life will be demanded of him. The epistle is Colossians 3, 1 to 11. Now, as you should know by now, we're reading through the epistles in sequence, so there is no inherent connection between this epistle and the other readings. However, in this case, I think this is the perfect counter-message that shows the flip side of the gospel. Rather than seeing a life focused on material wealth, we see Paul here sketching out the contours of a spiritual life, one grounded and set in God, not fixated on the material level. Our Old Testament lesson is uh, a selection of several different passages from the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes. Now, 
I love Ecclesiastes. It's one of my favorite books in the Old Testament, after the Psalms, of course, and I highly recommend it if you haven't read through it recently. When we think about the kinds of literature we have in the Old Testament, broadly speaking, uh, we've got legal material, historical material, prophetic material, poetic material, and wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes is one of the three wisdom books within the universally received canon, along with Proverbs and Job. Now, the Apocrypha has got two more, the Wisdom of Solomon and the Wisdom of Jesus ben Sirach, uh, also known as Ecclesiasticus, different from Ecclesiastes. Uh, we'll talk about these more in a second. In any case, the passages from Ecclesiastes are about the futility of making the acquisition of wealth a central purpose of life. Then, finally, we get to our psalm, Psalm 49, verses 1 through 12. By this time, you should have a pretty good idea about where this text is going to take us. Sure enough, Psalm 49 wrestles with issues of both wealth and purpose. In particular, it's interested in discussing the fate of the wealthy and how that relates to the fate of everyone else and the place of God in all of this. So, as you can see, our readings really are a fairly tight package this Sunday. Uh, it focuses on the point raised by Jesus in the Gospel— is the acquisition of wealth an adequate purpose in life? The answer from our scriptural sources is a resounding no. Psalm 49 is part of this chorus and fits in quite well with the other biblical materials arrayed here. Now, is there other information we need to help us understand what's going on? We've talked about several different kinds of psalms on this show. Uh, we've discussed psalms of thanksgiving, psalms of lament, hymns, uh, that sort of thing. There's no question that Psalm 49 is a wisdom psalm. That is, this is a psalm that's heavily invested with the ideas and the language of the wisdom movement. And in order to appreciate that fully, we need to talk a little bit about what wisdom was and how it expresses itself. As I mentioned, we've got five, maybe six, books that fall into the, the broad category of wisdom literature. Uh, whether you've got six depends on whether you consider the Song of Songs as wisdom or whether you'd rather lump it with the Psalms in the poetry category. I, th I think there are some good reasons for doing both and, and for considering it as a wisdom text. Now, when we consider these books and what they've got in them, I really like the idea best expressed by scholar Leo Perdue, which talks about a tradition of wisdom orthodoxy and then also a tradition of wisdom in revolt. Uh, then there's also a further later category of wisdom in conversation with Torah. When we section the various books out, the book of Proverbs is our big represent representative of the tradition of wisdom orthodoxy. Then Job and Ecclesiastes are both representatives of wisdom and revolt. And then finally, Wisdom of Solomon and Ben Sirach are wisdom in conversation with Torah. And I'd actually put the Song of Solomon in there too, for reasons that we seriously don't have time to get into right now. Uh, having defined these categories, now we'll talk a little bit about them. The book of Proverbs is very explicitly a gathered tradition that has a, so a social location within a court bureaucracy. That was a lot of words, so let me unpack that a little bit. If you look carefully at Proverbs, you'll see that it's broken up into chunks. For instance, Proverbs 1.1 begins with a section title, The Proverbs of Solomon, Son of David, King of Israel. Uh, 
Then you've got another section title in chapter 10, verse 1, the Proverbs of Solomon. Then there's another one in chapter 25, verse 1. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah, king of Judah, copied. Then there's another in chapter 30, verse 1, the words of Agur, son of Jokhech of Masa. And then a final one at the start of chapter 31, the words of Lemuel, king of Masa, which his mother taught him. The sense that you get from these various headings is big collection of materials built over time. It's not like one guy, Solomon or someone else, just sat down and wrote this whole book out. Instead, this is a compiled and edited collection. Also, if you look at the writing style, there are several different kinds of writing. The middle section of the book has a lot of parallel couplets, so just like the parallelism that we see in the Psalms. They can either be synonymous parallelism, where two lines are saying more or less the same thing in slightly different ways, uh, like Proverbs 16.32, quote, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city, end quote. Uh, so both lines are expressing the same idea, but in slightly different ways. Uh, but far more common in Proverbs is antithetical parallelism, where two lines are coming from different directions and draw a contrast. So here's a bunch of them from the start of chapter 10. Quote, a wise child makes a glad father, but a foolish child is a mother's grief. Treasures gained by wickedness do not profit, but righteousness delivers from death. The Lord does not let the righteous go hungry, but he thwarts the craving of the wicked. A slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. A child who gathers in summer is prudent, but a child who sleeps in harvest brings shame. Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. End quote. So we have a lot of this antithetical parallelism in couplets, but then we've also got different kinds of writing, like extended sections, as in chapter 7 and chapter 8. Uh, the couplets don't go anywhere, in that they are self-contained wise bits. But chapters 7 and 8, for example, are two different extended arguments on particular topics. So, that's why I refer to this as a gathered tradition. Based on the source titles within the material itself, and also based on the wide variety of literary styles within it, and also based on related material across the ancient Near Eastern world, uh, and, and we do have a lot of parallel wisdom literature from Mesopotamia and from Egypt, this is a body of literature that has been collected and accumulated over time. And because writing is connected with court bureaucracy, and we have a lot of references not only to royalty, but also how to behave in front of royalty, uh, check chapters 21 through 25 in Proverbs for this, uh, a court setting that is collecting material from diverse sources is what we've got here. Speaking generally, wisdom literature is a literature of observation. That is, it's based on looking and reflecting on the world around us. Theologically speaking, it has a pretty robust theology of creation going on. When it talks about God, or about the right ways to behave, this tradition of wisdom orthodoxy doesn't appeal to other written sources. It doesn't reference the Torah or other parts of the Bible. Instead, its concept is that God is the creator, 
And therefore, God has set things up in a particular way so that we can see and discover it, and by examining the handiwork of God, we can come to grasp the mind of God, or at least how it is that God wants us to live so that we can live in accordance with it. So, observation teaches us the ways of God. Putting these into practice in our lives is right living. Now, if you think you see a parallel here with Roman Stoic thought, or even with some traditions of Chinese Taoist thought, you'd be right. Wisdom and this kind of philosophical logic is not restricted solely to Israel. Now, um, in talking about this whole tradition of wisdom orthodoxy, uh, I want to call out two strands of thought that are really important for our topic today. The first is about wealth. You caught a little bit of that in the passage from Proverbs 11 that I read for you. One of the strong voices in wisdom orthodoxy is the idea that if you do right, if you act righteously, your righteousness will reward you, and that includes rewarding you with material possessions. Again, this is a literature of observation with a great interest in forming virtuous behavior. It's saying, take a look around. If you work hard and keep your nose clean, things will go well. You can see what happens to people who try to cheat their customers or who try to get rich through violence. They'll get whacked and will suffer the punishments for their evil deeds. If you do good, good things will happen for you. If you do bad, bad things will happen to you. Now, this evolves over time into something like riches are the blessing of God on a well-lived life. Poverty, or disasters, or material loss are a sign of divine displeasure at bad behavior. So that's, that's the first strand. The second strand we need to call out is the moral implications of literary parallelism. Like I said, a lot of Proverbs and this wisdom orthodoxy uses antithetical couplets. The righteous does this, but the wicked does that. The wise does this, but the foolish does that. The fool does this, but the prudent does that. As a means for remembering good advice, this is fine. As a way of maintaining a tradition in oral form, this is great because it gives you a consistent mental template to work from. Where this becomes a problem is when it becomes too rigid, too set, too clear-cut, too black and white. When you only have two mental options, wise or foolish, righteous or wicked, there's not a lot of room for gray or for nuance, or for qualifying what has been said. This is a danger inherent in wisdom orthodoxy, getting stuck in binaries, in using either-or logic as a way of observing and categorizing the world and human experience. So that's the second problematic strand I want to call out in the tradition of wisdom orthodoxy. Now, with this background in place, now we're at the point where we can take a look at the wisdom and revolt tradition that Job and Ecclesiastes and Psalm 49 are all a part of. Uh, all of these look at this wisdom orthodoxy and say, wait a minute, you've got some good ideas here. You've got some, some great ideas on how to live and what virtue looks like, but it doesn't work when you try to apply it like this. It, it doesn't match our observed experience of the world uh, in, in a fuller and more nuanced sense. It's not just black and white. It's not that easy. Hence, in Job, Job and his friends are both arguing from a perspective of wisdom orthodoxy. 
Job's friends are convinced that he had to have done something bad for bad things to happen to him. And Job is pissed off at God because he hasn't done anything bad, so he doesn't think that it's fair for bad things to have happened to him. Ecclesiastes is looking to put a lot more nuance into the game and to say, look, these simplistic categories are nice guidelines, but don't reflect the complex realities of human existence. These verbal assurances aren't going to ground a robust theology about God or a solid philosophy for how we're supposed to go on living. In particular, Ecclesiastes and Psalm 49 and Jesus are going after this notion that material wealth is a sign of God's favor. Don't get me wrong. Everyone wants to uphold the general idea that being that doing good, being honest, treating people fairly and well is a good idea. They're not trying to disagree with that. But what they are disagreeing with is the binary, and particularly the binary around wealth, and therefore the idea that wealth is a sign of righteousness, or, on the converse, that poverty or um, disaster is a sign of God's displeasure. So, that was all a really long-winded way of saying that Psalm 49 is in the middle of some big arguments about God and virtue and wealth and purpose and how all of this fits together. It's easy to get caught up in the talking points of American Christianity and to think that our fixations reflect what you find in the Bible. And so I find myself frequently having to remind people what is and isn't in the Bible. First, the Bible talks a hell of a lot more about what we do with our possessions than it does about sex. And we've touched on that a bit here already. Second, the Bible says far more about life than it ever does about death. Actually, it, it says more about wealth and, and what we do with it than it does about death. However, from the kind of language and, and conversations you hear floating around, you'd think that the Bible is all about what heaven is like and how to get there. It's not. The Bible actually says very little about the afterlife. And what it does say is kind of sketchy. And it seems to assume a lot of ideas which we may or may not know or hold, and seems to be contradictory in some places. And as a result, a lot of what a modern American Christians think about the afterlife doesn't actually come from the Bible. As a result, when we actually get biblical material talking about death and what happens afterwards, we often have no idea what to do with it, because it seems so far removed from what we've been taught. Psalm 49 is one of those rare bits that talks about death and the afterlife. But even when it does, it's, it's quite obscure and doesn't say nearly as much as what you might think. At the risk of turning this into a really long podcast, we need to at least touch on what's going on here to give you some context for hearing this stuff. First, a quick reminder. We believe that the Bible contains God's self-revelation to humanity. Part of what we understand this to mean is that divine revelation is being filtered through human consciousness, human concepts, and human language. So, when people are writing down what it is that they believe God has revealed, they are doing so in terms of things that they understand. Their framework for understanding God and who God is has been shaped to a degree by the peoples and the concepts around them. The Bible, 
as I just said, doesn't spend much time talking about the afterlife. That's especially the case for the Old Testament literature. In practical terms, what this means for the discussion that we're about to have is that we need to look around to Israel's neighbors to see what they were thinking so we have a frame of reference for understanding what we're seeing here. In a nutshell, there are two major camps in the ancient Near East when you talk about death. There's the Egyptian camp, and then there's the Babylonian camp. On the Egyptian side, death is crazy busy. We've all seen the Egyptian tomb paintings. There are all sorts of gods who populate the underworld, and it's a big, vibrant place where there's a lot of judging going on, but also daily activities that continue and social stratifications and and everything. It's a bigger continuation of what's already happening above ground. The books of the dead go into great detail about all the stuff that happens here. So the Egyptian picture is big, vibrant, fully stocked with people and gods. Uh, It's like regular life, only more so. Then there's the Babylonian side. First, there aren't big, vibrant tomb paintings. There is no Babylonian Book of the Dead. There aren't the same kind of elaborate tombs and grave goods and everything like what you have in Egypt. And that's because they have a very different idea of death. There are three literary sources that deal explicitly with death in the Babylonian literature. Uh, You have the poem, When Ishtar Went to the Netherworld, You have how Nurgle became king of the netherworld. And then you have the dream of Enkidu in the seventh tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh. What's fascinating here is that the language in the descriptions is almost identical across the three sources. So there's a strong literary tradition in the Sumerian and Akkadian literature of describing the underworld in this stock stereotype language. So here's how it describes things at the very beginning of the first text that I mentioned. Uh, when Ishtar went to the netherworld. And I'm reading here from Benjamin Foster's book, From Distant Days. Uh, One real quick note first, sin. uh, You're going to hear me say that. It's not the concept. Uh, Instead, it's the personal name of the moon god. So, moon god. Quote, To the netherworld, land of no return, Ishtar, daughter of sin, set her mind. Indeed, the daughter of sin did set her mind to the gloomy house, seat of the netherworld, to the house which none leaves who enters, to the road whose journey has no return, to the house whose entrance are bereft of light, where dust is their sustenance and clay their food. They see no light but dwell in darkness. They are clothed like birds and wings for garments, and dust has gathered on the door and bolt. End quote. That's the Babylonian concept of the afterlife. There's no judgment. There's no separation of the good and the bad. There's no exciting life if you were good and rich and well-stocked with grave goods like in the Egyptian version. You're dead. It's dark, and it's dusty. This is not a place that you want to be. The Egyptian afterlife could be fun. Not this. Not the Babylonian version. And this seems to be much more the concept that Psalm 49 is drawing on. Death is not a fun place to be. Okay, that's that's enough on that topic. Uh, Let's go ahead and move on. Since we're not the first Christians to read the Psalms, what insights have others found within this text before we came along? Cassiodorus really liked this psalm. He doesn't go into a really deep interpretation here because... In some sense, he doesn't have to. It's a very straightforward psalm, and I imagine that it resonated with him in particular. 
Now, I know, I need to do a show just introducing Cassiodorus, uh, why I talk about him so much. Since I haven't done that yet, you don't know his backstory. Essentially, Cassiodorus was a very high-ranking public servant in 6th century Italy, so the, the 500s. He and his father, and his father before him, were key parts of the Roman bureaucracy that kept things moving forward and stable when the Gothic kings took over the Western Roman Empire. So, Cassiodorus came from a wealthy, connected family, uh, served as consul of Rome, uh, and then served in a whole bunch of other political positions, uh, essentially as chief of staff and the later prime minister for the Roman Empire under the Gothic kings. However, Justinian, the emperor in the east, out of Constantinople, decided that he needed to reconquer the lost parts of the empire. So he sent his general Belisarius first to take back Roman North Africa from the Vandals, and then to take back the Western Empire from the Goths and the quote-unquote barbarian Theoderic and his line. Of course, the irony here is that Justinian was just as much of a barbarian as Theoderic was. Uh, To make a very long and complex story short, uh, there was a ten-year war in Italy that ravaged the land. Finally, the East won, and toppled the Gothic government and Cassiodorus with it. Cassiodorus then goes east with what's left of the Gothic court and a whole host of noble refugees and lives in Constantinople. It looks like he may well have tried to get his position back when he was there, but that didn't happen. And finally, he left to go back to his estates in the very southernmost part of Italy, where he established his monastery and lived out the second half of his life in prayer and in writing and in seclusion. And let's not forget... It's in this exact period, uh, between 542 and 556, that Justinian started passing laws where one of the possible punishments was monastic imprisonment. That is, he'd send bishops or lay nobles off to monasteries for the rest of their lives as a form of a prison sentence. We don't know if this is what happened to Cassiodorus. We don't know if his monastic exile was self-imposed or if it was backed by soldiers in the weight of law, but It's a pretty significant reversal of his fortunes, that's for sure. As a result, in a very real sense, Cassiodorus has lived out what we see being wrestled with in this psalm. He had been among the powerful and the wealthy. He rubbed shoulders with the very people who called lands after themselves. And he'd seen it all come crashing down as well. He'd stood at the top, and he'd seen the consequences. He'd seen friends and political rivals put to death. He'd seen kings dragged off in chains. He'd seen how wealth did or didn't protect a person's life. There's no way to peer into his finances, but you have to imagine that he literally lost a fortune between the collapse of the Gothic government and trying to get himself back into the good graces of the mechanics of the empire in the East. And then, essentially, he was forced into retirement on the bit that he had left. So, I'm not going to go through his interpretation point by point or anything. Rather, I want to read for you the conclusion that he draws from this psalm. Quote, This psalm is to be read repeatedly and stored in the treasury of the memory. For Christ warns us at the outset that we must listen to it with our heart's ears. Christ himself attested to its merit, since he earnestly urged that men listen to it in all quarters of the world. It contains all that pertains to contemplative and moral instruction. As that notable verse promised, My mouth shall speak wisdom, 
and the meditation of my heart, prudence. Holy truth has unfolded to us what he promised. Now may he make his precepts become sweet and cleave fast to our hearts. End quote. Let me hit one of those lines again. It contains all that pertains to contemplative and moral instruction. What this reminds me of is a Buddhist tradition of making new monks go and meditate in the places where dead bodies are burned. The point was to give them an intimate and visceral experience of death as a fundamental point of orientation. I think Cassiodorus is pointing us to something very similar here, coming from the perspective of the guy who did literally have it all, but who now finds himself a monk in a monastery for the rest of his life. It contains all that pertains to contemplative and moral instruction. So, how do we read this psalm on this day? Structurally, it's important to see that we have a repeated verse. Verses 11 and 20 are really similar. They're not identical in the first part, but there are only two words different in the Hebrew, and the beginning and end of the verse are identical. This is the sort of thing that stands out as a divider and as a repeated and reiterated thought. To take verses 1 through 11 as a first section, we have a couple of clear movements. First, there's a summons to attention. That's the first three verses. It's the psalmist, hey, I'm talking to you, kind of moment. Then verses 4 through 5 pose the key question at hand through the use of two couplets. The first couplet introduces the issue. The second makes it a lot more pointed. The first is, why should I be afraid in evil days, which is pretty general. We actually get to the main point as that question and couplet receives more focus and specificity in verse 5. The wickedness of those who trust in their goods and boast of their great riches. So, we're not just messing with bad people here. We're concerned with rich bad people. Then, verses 6 through 8 introduce the main thesis. We can never ransom ourselves. No amount of wealth will ever ultimately keep us alive. Death comes for all. Verses 9 through 11 wraps this up. The wise and the foolish die. They leave their wealth to others, and death will be their common fate. What we're pointing to here is death as the great existential leveler. You may not see equality in life, but there's certainly equality in death. Everybody dies. It doesn't matter how rich you are or how smart you are. In the end, you're toast. Then we've got our second section. Think of this as one great big piece of parallelism. We had our first part, which is analogous to the first line of a couplet. Now we're going to say it again, but advance the point a bit. This is that dynamic, synonymous parallelism that we've talked about in the past, where we're repeating what we said, but we go beyond it and find ourselves in another place when we get to the end. So, we want to look at the second part with reference to what was said in the first part, and how it goes beyond what was said in the first. Verse 12, then, ought to be read in parallel with verse 5, because we're looping back to a repeated theme, which is trust. What is it that we trust? And, of course, having been raised a Lutheran, I simply can't hear this without hearing Luther's explanation of the first commandment and the small and large catechisms ringing in my ears. Your God is that in which you put your trust. Hence, verse 12 and 5 show us the idolatry of the self, those who trust in themselves and what they can acquire and hold on to for themselves. 
verses 13 and 14 illustrate what happens to those who trust in themselves. They die, like everybody else. Then, we get to the interpretive center of gravity for this second portion, and that's verse 15. But God will ransom my life. He will snatch me from the grip of death. Note this verse carefully. I want to finish the rest of the psalm, uh, then we're going to come back here. Verses 16 through 20 again reiterate what we saw in verses 9 through 11, and it finishes in almost exactly the same way. Again, this is a meditation on death as the great existential equalizer. Now, if we were to paraphrase this psalm really quickly, here's how I'd do it. I'd take a bit of 4, mix in a bit of 5 and 6, then hit 15. It would look like this. Why should I be afraid in evil days of those who put their trust in their goods and boast of their great riches? We can never ransom ourselves or deliver to God the price of our life. But God will ransom my life. He will snatch me from the grasp of death. I think this is the heart of the psalm. What's fascinating, though, is that we get verse 15. That's the key. Quote, but God will ransom my life. He will snatch me from the grasp of death. Unquote. But we have no clear indication of what this is supposed to mean. Does this almost mean this literally? That God will save him from dying in a certain given instance or tribulation? Does he mean this metaphorically, with reference to some form of afterlife? That is, that he will experience something other than the house of dust in and through the presence of God? We don't know, because he doesn't say. That's not where the emphasis is. The body of the psalm is a negative example. Don't be like this. Don't have this expectation. Don't put your trust in yourself, in your riches, or even in your wisdom, because all that leads to the same place. Instead, put your trust in God. And we ask, okay, how? Why? What will that do for me? But that's not what the psalmist wants to answer. That's not what he's holding up for our contemplation. And actually, if you think about it, this is exactly what Jesus does in the parable in Luke as well. He gives us the negative example. Don't be that guy. But he doesn't say which guy to be instead. For me, this is where Colossians saves the day. Back in chapter 2, Paul had talked about dying through baptism. And then he delivers his big punchline here in chapter 3 of Colossians. Quote, so if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. End quote. Yes, live wisely. Don't live like an idiot. Don't put your trust in the temporary and the perishable. Live your life for God, in God, through God, because your life is hidden with Christ in God. The point isn't about how we die, or if we die, or even where we go when we die. The point here is about how we live. We live with God, by him, with him, in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Do these words sound familiar somehow? Because they should. This is what we're driving at here. So, Cassidorus recommends this psalm as having tremendous amounts to teach us. Memorize it and rehearse it, and it will teach you all that pertains to contemplative and moral instruction. 
It gives us a perspective that shocks us into considering what activities and purposes in life are truly worthwhile, what it is that ultimately matters. I, I hate to say it, but this points out one of the great missed opportunities in our current prayer book. Uh, the collect for last week has that terrific line in it, quote, that we may pass through things temporal, that we finally not lose the things eternal, end quote. Uh, we need the temporal stuff. We exist within the temporal stuff, but that stuff, that wealth, can never give us purpose or meaning or fulfillment. That's found in trusting God alone. Um, so that's what we have to say today about Psalm 49 as the psalm appointed for track two of proper 13 in your C of the Revised Common Lectionary. If you've enjoyed today's show, please tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. You can find more of my thoughts at www.saintbeadproductions.com and follow me on Twitter, and there's a link you can follow on my blog and in the show notes. If you want to drop me a note about the show, you can email me at psalmcast at saintbeadproductions.com. Until next time, I'm Derek Olson for St. Bede Productions. The path you must follow is in the Psalms. Never leave it. Oh God, make speed to save me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me, to help me. Oh God, make speed to save me. Oh Lord, make haste to help me, to help me, to help me.